Welcome to episode 147 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined for the 147th plus time, the first time in a couple episodes, by my <laughs> dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Welcome back, Courtney. Ah, it's good to be back. Hello, Ben. Hello, NCR listeners. Yeah, it's good to be back. Good to have you back. If you want to get into why you haven't been on yeah, a couple episodes, no, let's just course. get that right out there. Courtney, obviously the last couple episodes we had were about Maria Sharapova's positive test for meldonium. That roll, the word just rolls off the tongue now, <laughs> uh, and you were decided not to be part of those. So if you can explain to our listeners yeah. your thoughts there. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it was one of those things where I, I definitely wanted to, if anything, be on those podcasts just to explain, um, but relied on Ben to just uh, get the message across for now, just because we were both in transit and there was a lot of things going on the, the last couple of weeks. But um, yes, I, I did choose to recuse myself of the last couple of episodes as, as the massive topic, obviously and understandably, through the first week of, of Indian Wells was was Maria Sharapova's announcement. Um, I just, I, in talking to Ben about it, and I was saying this the other day, I, it, this goes back to a lot of the discussions that we had kind of around the Kickstarter specifically, um, about what I've always wanted NCR to be, what we as a team have always wanted NCR to be. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, the word that always comes to mind for me is transparency. And I want people to know that, you know, the opinions offered by Ben uh, on this podcast, the opinions offered by me on this podcast are are free. I mean, like, they're they're unencumbered by, you know. As clean as possible. Yeah, exactly, by conflicts of interest or anything like that. And I knew that... If I was going to be on the podcast and I said whatever I said, regardless of what the contents of my statement, of my comments would be, they could be very easily and understandably and justifiably um, criticized as being, oh, you're pro this, you're pro that, oh, you're just speaking for the tour, oh, you know, things like that. And I just didn't want that to be the case. To me, that hurts the NCR brand more than you know, me recusing myself. So yeah. it just made more sense for me not to. Um, and I want to say, like, it, it was never a situation where, um, as people who may be tuning in for the first time, I am an employee of the WTA. I'm, I, I'm the senior writer for WTA Insider at the WTA. It was never a situation where the WTA came to me and said, hey, you can't do this. You can't say this. You can't talk about it. Um, it was just a, a personal and professional decision on my part to, to step down. And you know, I can only hope that people appreciate that and at least read into it as when I am on the podcast, when I am able to to weigh in on things that that the the opinions are are mine and and they're not. Um, I don't feel like they're going to be judged one way or the other because of my you know uh, tax forms. Hopefully, hopefully people <laughs> do understand that for sure. And I think the show marched on without you. And obviously, the share public case was a extreme unforeseen major thing. So we don't anticipate <laughs> stories of that magnitude breaking all the time. That being said... It seems this, to be a pattern in 2016. 2016 but... has been eventful. I guess, let's, how is your Indian Wells Corning? Normally, it's this oasis of of relaxation, of perfect weather. The weather was worse than usual, first but not... First week was brutal. First week was not great, but afterwards, second week weather was wonderful. I'm sure you all care a lot about the weather <laughs> uh, that we had here. Yeah. It was an odd tournament, though. It felt like it never quite got its footing because the, the Sharapova story, and I think you said this before, the 
first part of the tournament is sort of always the most fun or the most enjoyable part, at least from how we look at tennis and how we do our jobs. And they, this tournament kind of had a bit of a bulky start. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it has been a tournament that was, except for a few days in the middle, um, has not been about the tennis at the tournament. Yeah. Um, and, and that has been incredibly frustrating on every level, I think, for everyone. Um, I don't think that anything that happened the last two weeks off court um, in Indian Wells was something that anybody would want to see, that anybody enjoyed opining on, reporting on, hot taking well, no on, hoping for this, for you know, sure. those sorts of things. So so it was definitely a weird couple of weeks um, in Indian Wells. It was a weird, you know, splash back into things. I had been home for all of February after the Australian Open. Um, just kind of recuperating from from a very long Australia trip. Uh, so, yeah, it was a bit of a rude awakening um, in the desert. But, you know, the tennis was still wonderful. Like when, when you could actually put everything aside and, and pay attention to what happened uh, at the tournament, there was an incredible amount of, you know, great storylines, whether you're talking about Alexander Zverev or Daria Kazakina or Nicole Gibbs. Um, you know, Rafa uh, was great as well. Vika, obviously, winning the title. Yeah. Um, Serena, Venus coming back. I mean, there were so many great storylines. And it just kind of, for me as somebody who is tasked with being a bit of a WTA storyteller, it was just incredibly frustrating to just kind of feel like you were constantly writing about the thing that no one was talking about. And that that was definitely a frustration. But I think that once we get some distance and we look back on Indian Wells, I think that some of the seeds that were planted on the court in the tennis here, I think that we will see we will come back and say it started at Indian Wells. So we will come back to the tennis later in the show. But for now, we have to get to we're recording this on Sunday evening. The thing that happened this morning, neither of us were there. If you want to sneak something by us in the future, <laughs> word to the wise or the potentially unwise. Do it at nine AM. Yes. We will, we will not be there. Some uh, of us were fighting a fever. It was it was a whole thing. So a yeah. whole thing with nine AM. If this was the slate political gab fest, this episode would be called the Ladies Know What I'm Talking About edition. <laughs> because this whole day got pretty nutty quickly. Anyway, at nine AM or nine thirty thereabouts, there was a breakfast chat as it's billed, hosted annual, annual every year. Annual thing. Hosted by Raymond Moore, who is this year for the first time the tournament director. After Steve Simon stepped down to become uh, head of the WTA, my boss, your boss, yeah, <laughs> uh, that's why he wanted to be Courtney's boss. Courtney, Courtney uh, I got, drew the, him over. got the gig. Like, you and... know what? Let's let's go boss that kid around for a little bit. Let's let's do that. Who doesn't want to do that to you, <laughs> really? Um, anyway, so he was talking, and it was a very wide ranging, uh, extemporaneous chat, but it drifted into some dodgy territory, as it turned out, from. When they're talking first about the status of Indian Wells as an ATP event, there's talk that it wants to upgrade from being just a Masters 1000 event to a Super Masters. And it's justifiably so. I mean, when you're, I've been to a lot of these Masters events too. Courtney, you have as well. Now you've been to Shanghai, which I haven't. Um, but this one is just by tonnage quite a bit yeah. bigger than the others for sure. So they're talking about that. And then it came to the WTA side and Ray Moore answered thusly. No, I think the WTA, you know, in my next life when I come back, I want to be someone on the WTA because they ride on the coattails of the men. They don't make any decisions and they are lucky. They are very, very lucky. If I was a lady player, I'd go down every night on my knees and thank God that Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal were born because they have carried the sport they really have. Courtney, (laughs) 
I'm like cringing as you because I've spent the whole day reading it in black and white. Your reaction. My reaction. Um, I mean, what can I say that Serena Williams didn't say? Um, And I think that that, that's kind of my lead off reaction. I. And honestly, by the time this podcast gets posted, what can I say that hasn't already been said in terms of, you know, the pieces we've seen already on Fox Sports, on ESPNW. It's broke out of uh, tennis real quick. Yeah, Think Progress, uh, Lindsey Gibbs. I mean, it's incredibly insulting. Um, and especially as one... Here, I will say this, okay? And I've, I think I've said this. You and I have both said this on this podcast before. Maybe back when we were in the double digits um, of NCR. That... Being a WTA fan is a political act. Yeah. Women, a, very, a women's sports fan. A, win, a women's sports fan. If you are a women's sports fan, it's not just about liking women's sports and just liking watching women play sports. You are kind of making a statement as to, in a lot of ways, your values and, and what you value and, and the values of equality and um, and appreciating and celebrating uh, women's sport on the same level as men's sport. And so when I see like quotes like this, when I hear quotes like this, that is what I think of is the fact that it's still a political act. It's still a fight that that has to be fought. And and um, and you're still having to convince. I mean, the WTA and women's tennis is the preeminent professional league in the world for women, for women. Yeah. Preeminent. The prize money, the exposure, what is it, last time, eight or nine of the top ten Forbes highest paid female athletes were tennis players. I mean, there's an incredible opportunity within the women's game. And so much of that comes from just the women building upon the women, you know, over generations of time of of building this thing, starting at Billie Jean King and going into Chris and Martina and and from there going into Serena and Lindsay and, and Justine and all them. And then you have the current generation now. And so that was kind of my initial reaction once I got over the like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Let me read that over four times to make sure that, that, that's, that a person in power within this sport said this out loud and comfortably said it. Um, it, it was just absolutely shocking. I still remain shocked. The, the reactions to to the quotes have not surprised me in in the least um and for it to come the morning of Serena Williams who obviously we know has boycotted this tournament had boycotted this tournament for 14 years yeah. finally returned last year this is the year that both she and Venus for the first time in 15 years were in the draw here in India Wells Venus Williams was in the stands today as Serena played her first final here since that terrible day in Indian Wells for these comments to be made when you have the number one and one of the greatest female athletes of all time, a woman who sells tickets, um, who outsells many of the men. Let's not pretend that that isn't the case. And to have that overshadow this match and on top of that overshadow an incredible accomplishment by Victoria Azarenka and for it to be the headline to steal the headline away from the men and Novak Djokovic doing whatever he did. I don't know what he did because I was too busy running around after the women's final. Yeah. Um, was just, I don't know. I mean, the word that comes to mind is just abhorrent, honestly. I, I just, Good word. I find it just absolutely shocking that those comments could be made and not that you you couldn't catch yourself and say that and realize, oh, I use a bad turn of phrase. Or because I understand the point that Ray Moore is trying to make, the free market argument with respect to to equal prize money on ATP versus WTA, we've heard that before 
It's been an argument that has been made across the board. You can choose to agree with it or not agree with it. It is theoretically, to me, the best argument against equal prize money is the free market argument, okay. even though I completely reject it because it's not a free market. But um, I understand the point he's trying to make. But the turn of phrase that he uses just set himself up for, for, for what's happening now. And, and it's incredibly disappointing. It definitely is. And I think we have to contextualize Ray Moore. Not a name a lot of tennis fans are probably familiar with before today. But he is the director of what is essentially the biggest women's tournament on tour outside of the year-end championships. The well, yeah, but even years. in terms of, you know, I think prize money, I think it's the most developer mandatories even. It's the fifth slam. I mean, Indian Wells is a huge deal. And like you said, everything that's going on today, this would have been a very easy story for me to write today. Coming in, doing Serena plays the final again. I knew she was going to be emotional. Maybe she didn't know, but I know. I know you, Serena. You're going to be emotional. She was. She came out tight. Still won. The crowd reception meant a lot to her. All that stuff. It was a slam dunk. Good. If you want to close the loop on Indian Wells. He said said that. I mean, you can debate that, but it definitely does at least make for a tidier ending than there had been in the past for being back here. All of this completely capsizes that, I think. And just, yeah, the sort of the way he said it was just wrong for a lot of ways. I don't need to pick apart why it's wrong. But if he's saying, if his argument is it's a star-driven sport, which he talked about a bunch in, throughout the whole press conference, which I'm sure, I'm guessing the transcript of will be out in full if anybody wants to see it by the time the show goes up on sure. the ASAP Sports website. Um, anybody who knows the sport knows it's a star-driven sport. We're not arguing that. But this idea that the women as a group, as a class of humanity, that women should be the ones thankful for Rafa and Roger riding up on their saintly Nike horses to save them or rescue them from poverty or something is ridiculous because the men, all all the men but them, first of all, are just as if not more indebted to these guys than them. The people who owe the most to Rafa and Roger are the guys like Burditch and Ferrer, who, I'm sorry, would not fill a shoebox on their own and are now in the top 10 of all-time prize money in the ATP history because they've come in this incredibly lucrative era. Is that right? Are they in the top 10 all-time? All-time. That's crazy. All-time. And both of them... (laughs) Yeah, both of them all-time. And they just have, what, one slam runner-up each to their names and one master's title each to their names? Top 10 all-time. Ask John McEnroe about how he feels about that someday. But seriously, like, this is... They've... Rising tide floats all boats, whatever. Why single out the lady boats, to use his word? (laughs) The lady boats! (laughs) I... I don't get it. I do not get it. I think that it's, I think it's, it's very, obviously, yes, it's very sloppy to put it mildly. I think that the tournament knew right away after he said this, that they were in some trouble. It took a while for these quotes to come out because honestly, nobody reads this transcript. It's almost always pretty It's usually pretty, pretty, mar- pretty much marketing speed talking about uh, renovations around the grounds and, yeah. you know, that's been. And there weren't even any big these... renovations this time. Yeah, that's yeah. why it just didn't, it didn't even register. Um, yeah. So this was a very unforced error is what we're basically saying. This was an occasion that didn't need to happen at all to even have this event, this breakfast chat. Not that they shouldn't have it because I hear people, some writers go and they love free food and bless them. It <laughs> <laughs> was like, a weird reaction. Everybody's like, why weren't you there? There was free food. I'm like, meh. Because my hours bed was, was really nice. By the way, 11 a.m. start for the final. Rough. Serena would agree. Anyway, let's get to <laughs> Serena's reaction to all this. You said it, Courtney. Serena went better what just handled this so well and really set the tone, I think, for the WTA player. She was the first one to comment, to respond, came into press pretty quickly after her loss. And when she had been, again, very uh, emotionally but positive on court 
in the trophy ceremony, saying how much she appreciated the warm reaction of the crowd, who has been, it must be said, great for. And she with was her. genuinely moved on court, genuinely so, in, in a concession speech, and um, yeah. and you under, I mean, the context of today's final, you understood totally. all of the things going on there, but. But, uh, you know, after losses, as those of us who have been in many Serena post-loss press conferences, there are not a lot of them. But when they do happen, she's pretty reticent to talk about losses. So if you give her a reason to not talk about the loss, she'll probably take that. She at least jumped on this one. So here is Serena. Serena, you just shared a really beautiful moment on the court with CEO Raymond Moore. And earlier today, he said that... Quote, if I was a lady player, I'd go down every night on my knees and thank God that Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal were born. They have carried the sport. What's your reaction to that comment and the controversy it's created? Um, well, I think I don't understand why I always have to answer questions about controversy like this. <laughs> Obviously, um, I don't think any woman should be down on their knees thanking any anybody like that. I think um, Venus, myself, a um, number of players have been... If I could tell you every day how many people say they don't watch tennis unless they're watching myself or my sister, I would, you know, I would... I couldn't even bring up that number. Um, so I don't think... I don't think that is a very accurate statement. I think um, there's a lot of women out there who are more, who are very exciting to watch. I think there's a lot of men out there who are exciting to watch. I think, um, you know, I think it's just, it definitely goes both ways. Um, And I think those remarks are very much mistaken and very, very, very inaccurate. Do you feel like maybe there's a misunderstanding behind what, how people are interpreting that in some way? Well, if you read the transcript, you can only interpret it one way. Um, I speak very good English. I'm sure he does, too. So, you know, there's only one way to interpret that. Get on your knees, which is offensive as enough, and thank a man, which is not... We as women have come a long way, and... Um, we shouldn't have to drop to our knees at any point. Serena, you've left Wimbledon, and you've been also Wimbledon through a lot of struggles for equal president Wimbledon, which Venus helped accomplish. Are you surprised that in 2016 that these sort of issues or complaints or sexism is still cropping up? Yeah, I'm totally surprised, especially with me and Venus and all the other women on the tour that's done well. And last year, the women's final, the U.S. Open sold out well before the men. I'm sorry, did Roger play in that final or did Rafa or any men play in that final that was sold out before the men's final? Um, I think not. So I just feel like, you know, you in order to make a comment, you have to have history and you have to have facts and you have to to know things and you have to know of all, of everything. I mean, you look at someone like Billie Jean King, who you know, who opened so many doors for not only women tennis players, but women athletes in general. Um, So I feel like, you know, that is such a disservice to her and every female, not only a female athlete, but every woman on this planet that has ever tried to stand up for what they believe in and just being proud to be a woman. What was your reaction when you first saw it? You said you were top transcript. Um, Really?
Um, actually, I love that quote. Uh. <laughs> so that was Serena, and Serena just really, again, I was like I said, I was in the front row, just like smiling, being like, "This is what I wanted to hear. I want to hear the top players come out and when they feel something, say something." And she really put him on blast and did yeah. not hold back. And I think it set an incredible tone for how she, because she came out way before the WTA's official statement or anything came out. So she set with a tone for the reaction to be the degree of severity for rejecting this statement and the premises behind it. And I think it was all tremendous. And I will say on the women's final, like that wound up being a Vinci Panetta match that got sold out for the men's final. Love that. <laughs> Love it. It. No, I mean, I think that that Serena bringing up that that sellout, uh, and and again, this is my my thing is that you know, for to make those comments on this day, on this day, when Serena is about to play that final, she was the presumptive favorite going into that final. She, you know, most people thought that she would go ahead and and win that title, first title since two thousand and one here in Indian Wells, um, and really put a cap onto things. It it just it's just so unfortunate in my opinion that that it completely overshadowed what could have been a really you know strong finish for for the tournament and you know and and it was easy it was so preventable it really was and that's that's what's so um, you know just kind of sad and just exhausting about the last few hours of of kind of trying to sort through everything and and what you said about Serena is right which is that. As she was, obviously, she is the leading spokeswoman of the tour. She is the face of the tour. Um, now more than ever, which more than ever. not that she wasn't already, but now more than ever, she really stands alone. And for her to go as strong as she did kind of creates this safe zone yeah. for the remaining players to to also take it that far if they want to, if not further. And uh, but but I think in the, the, the immediate aftermath, I'm not sure that it really trickled through. I had I had texted a few players and kind of asked them, hey, have you seen this? Um, you know, and most of them responded and were like, no. And I was like, okay, well. It's going to be a thing. You might, you might want to see it. Um, and the reaction has been, at least on my phone, incredibly swift and one-sided and eminently quotable, but I can't. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but it pretty much echoes everything that, that, that Serena said. But, um, you know, it's, it, it was big for her to go as big as she did. And I, I, like I said, like I had a whole, I think people follow me on Twitter and saw that, you know, while this is all happening, I kind of said, you know, I, I have words, believe me. And everybody's like, oh, we want to hear what you have to say. Honestly, Serena nailed it out of the park so, like, cleanly that I kind of don't need to weigh in. I could just and, point people to her transcript. And she's the one who is the number one player in the world who is being lumped into this group so she's the perfect spokesperson exactly like i can be insulted all i want as a wta fan and as a woman as a a wta writer and whatever but i'm not the one being attacked here and she's she is and she's the damn superstar so she's the one who's being slighted thinking that she owes something to rafa she doesn't owe jack shit to rafa i mean this in the nicest way to rafa and roger they ain't done jack shit for serena williams but this is also one of the and this is also one of those things that becomes very frustrating when these discussions come up it's not about pitting the tours against each other right it's such a waste of, of energy and of talk, and, and it's just, it's pointless, and it's a total red herring. Equal prize money is here. We've talked about this in the past on this podcast when we've talked about the issue. Sure. That it is here, generally speaking. Once you have equal prize money, it ain't going away. This is my thoughts, and we can get to Novak Djokovic next. But Novak, but basically, because of the reasons why equal prize money was instituted, the rationale was given behind it was for ideological reasons. 
They weren't saying when they gave it to It wasn't to about free market. They weren't saying, hey, the box office numbers now show that it's now comparable enough to pay the women equally. No, they were saying they were paying them equally because it's symbolically the right thing to do. It's the, the As Billie Jean King, I think one of her many catchphrases, she has so many, she's like a bingo board of catchphrases, <laughs> I love her, uh, was one of them is like, the money is the message or something. Yeah. And for equal prize money, it's exactly that. It's not about, okay, well, we saw that there were 11,000 people watching Thomas Burdich, whereas the equivalent sixth-ranked player on the WTA, Carlos Suarez Navarro, only had 12 people watching her. That's not the problem. That's not the issue. And I'm sure those numbers are not because people love Carla. Um, love. Jador. Right. But that's not the issue. The issue is why they did it. Because of why they did it, they will never... I'm sorry. Undo it. I cannot imagine any tournament. It happened very briefly with the Australian Open. Undid equal prize money in the 90s. Got such hell for it. They pretty much immediately undid it. It's not going to happen. Like the ATP can go and they can say, hey, at our standalone ATP Masters events, as well as our 500s and 250s, we want to increase prize money. And this is a point that Howard Bryant for ESPN always makes on Twitter whenever the equal prize money issue comes up, is there isn't equal prize money. Not even close. Not even close. The men are completely over, like, I'm not saying overpaid, but outpaid compared to the women. And that is a fight that the women still have to fight with respect to to its own tour events and, and things like that. And it's it's something that, you know, obviously they're incredibly focused on on fixing. And I think in my interview with um, Steve Simon last week on the WTA Insider podcast, he says, you know, we want his vision is to create a situation where the women are not as reliant on the Grand Slams for prize money as is currently the case. He wants to fix that to make it so that the tours compensate the women uh, the way that they should be compensated, which I think is, is absolutely right. And that's the thing is that pitting the two tours against each other. It's like it's like the men walking out there and saying, oh, we're so underpaid. It's like, what are you talking about? You know, the ATP number 100 is completely, you know, getting paid more than the WTA 100. Equal prize money only applies at the biggest tournaments. Um, and as Ben says, it's it's an ideological thing and it had nothing ever to do with what was, you know, gate sales and, and things like that. Because if that were the case, then, you know, we all remember how cyclical the sport is. And when there was a time, we were all talking about it in the press room, when the, the WTA semifinals at a major out, was sold out and the men's could barely get anybody in there. There were some dark times for the ATP in the not so recent past. I mean, we talk about the era not to name names and say these people are, you know, useless, but the era of, like, Albert Costa and Juan Carlos Ferrer winning slams was not box office for anybody. It just wasn't. And the ATP should realize, I mean, with Roger Federer being out of this tournament, Indian Wells' attendance was down for the first time in a long time. And Maria Sharapova obviously was out too, but knowing the crowd here, Federer is the main driver of that dip. I'm not disagreeing with Ray Moore on that front. When he's out, it looks very different in the stands. You don't see people coming. And that's the future men's tennis is going to have to have. It's like that weird thing of like either 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 you can say that there was a dip this year in attendance because Roger Federer wasn't here, in which case, okay, well then think about your future and think about what you're asking with respect to prize money for a tour that does not consist of Roger Federer, who everyone will agree, hands down, is a primary uh, uh, audience driver worldwide. Yeah, That's not an argument anybody's trying to make. Or or the flip side is you say, oh, attendance was down or the, there was a dip in attendance because Maria Sharapova wasn't here. In which case, you completely unraveled your entire argument about, about you know, coattails and whatnot. So it's, I don't know. It just does it just, none of it makes sense to me. I don't, there's a weird thing where I kind of feel like that scene from Mean Girls, like where the WTA is talking 
to kind of the ATP guys who keep bringing this up and being like, you're a little too obsessed with me. Like, just do your thing. And you argue your case and that's fine behind the scenes. We'll argue our case and that's fine behind the scenes. Everybody fight, everybody scrap, and it's okay. But what is the need, to quote Victoria Azarenka, of kind of like throwing everybody under the bus? Like, you don't need to make somebody else look small. Yeah. In order to make yourself look big, like, as Victoria said, that's just sad. So, <laughs> you know, so that's just a sad that person. Was, that was a very good nutshell of her comments, which were a little rambly, but that was pretty much what she had to say. Yeah, I mean, she's, Victor, Vika tried to take more of a zen approach to things. Yeah. Like, let's stay above it all. This is dumb. We all have mothers. We all have mothers. It was There was a lot going on. But but eventually, as she got a little bit more riled up, things started to crystallize, actually, a little bit more for her. As opposed to when she was trying to be a bit, a, li- a little bit more diplomatic, but but her point was simply that is just like let's just chill, like don't worry about it and don't put other people down. Like what's the point of that? That's just dumb and um, yeah. So I don't know. Those were my to equal Victoria Zarenka, my long rambling uh, scattershot kind of take on it. As a bit of an experiment to test this, we're gonna look. We just pulled up the 2015 year end prize money leaderboards for the. ATP and WTA, which are tougher to find than I thought they would be. <laughs> uh, Courtney, can you look at who is the number 50 ranked player in the ATP for year-end prize money? I can. Is this just singles? No. Okay, the Bryans are in there. Bryans had a bad year. Oh, it's Mike Bryan. Okay. So, yeah, Mike Bryan. $779,465 he made in 2015. Okay. 779 for number 50, Mike Bryan. $780,000. Yeah. Okay, how about the women? What is number 50 for the women? Serena Diaz, $642. Significant difference. $150,000 difference. Okay. Yeah. No, it's fine. So, so there you go. So that's pretty much it. And it goes, it, the, the gap stays pretty big, pretty far down the rankings. So Novak Djokovic comes in later to press and had, a biz- and after winning his title, which you mentioned, Novak Djokovic won in New Orleans, he wins everything, beat Milos Ronic 6-2-6-0 in a lackluster final. Ronic again coming up hobbled. We'll talk more about Ronic in a bit. But Novak Djokovic's response was, I just found it very strange. I was the one who first asked about it, and he was like, bordering on laughing while I was asking him about, obviously, I was saying some ridiculous things, saying, you know, I said uh, there's some controversy about Ray Moore saying women should go down on their knees and thank the men for carrying the sport, so I understand, like, smiling nervously or something at that. Uh, And he said, I don't know what to say, I heard about it. Obviously, it's a very delicate and sensitive subject to talk about. Women deserve respect and admiration for what they're doing. And then he sort of went off on equal prize money and said equal prize money was the main subject of the tennis world in the last seven, eight years. Sidebar, not sure that's really true. really true. (laughs) Um, I have been through that process as well, so I understand how much power and energy WTA and all the advocates for equal prize money have invested in order to reach that. I applaud them for that. I honestly do. They They fought for what they deserve, and they got it. On the other hand, I think that our men's tennis world, ATP world, should fight for more because the stats are showing that we have much more spectators on the men's tennis matches. I think that's one of the reasons why maybe we should get awarded more. But again, you know, we can't complain because we also have great prize money in men's tennis and men's tennis is at the right moment in time. Um, I don't know what Raymond Moore was exactly referring to when he was saying that. This is all I can say from my perspective. And I asked him, do you think prize money should be equal? It was up to you because he seemed to think no. And he said, listen, again, my answer to you is not yes and no. It's women who who should fight for what they think they deserve and we should fight for what we think we deserve. I think as long as it's like that and and there is data and stats available information, you know, upon who attracts more attention, spectators, who sells more tickets and stuff like that, 
in relation to that, it has to be fairly distributed. And again, I would say, you're getting a lot more money, Novak, than the men. Than the, sorry, than the women. The men are getting a lot more money. So if they want it to be even a bigger gap, okay, greedy, but look at the stats. Anybody, men's player, find these very hard to find PDFs on prize money. Do it apples to apples comparison, and you'll see the men are getting paid a ton more. Ton! Ton more. Uh, Djokovic then went on uh, to he got asked a question about respecting women or his first coach, Elena. He went this very sort of odd answer about um, uh, knowing that women go through different things with their bodies. Uh, you know, the hormones and different stuff. We don't need to go into details. Ladies know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Ladies know what I'm talking Ladies about. Ladies know what I'm talking about. It's been a catchphrase, admittedly, for the last few hours. Ladies, Ladies know, know what, I'm... what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah. He ended by saying, I'm completely for women power, which is a good phrase. Uh, he said that if Ray Moore was not politically correct, uh, maybe exaggerated a little bit, but didn't really come out against him anywhere near the way Serena did. I'm curious slash terrified slash <laughs> curious about being terrified at what the male player reaction to this will be if and when they are asked about it coming up in Miami. I don't know. Does it matter what they think? I don't. I don't. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure it does matter. Yeah, from yeah. A, from a symbolic from from, you know, one looking back on on the fight for equal prize money, which obviously was was spearheaded by you know symbolically Venus Williams as being the big one, that big top player to take a stand. One of the players who was always great about kind of supporting that cause was Andy Roddick. Yeah. And I think that that mattered greatly. I mean, you know, we talk about, you know, stepping outside of sport um, and you just talk about, you know, everyday life. And obviously in America, we're in the midst of a pretty disgusting uh, presidential election yep. on many different levels. And there's a lot of discussion, you know, just within like, you know, you know, about the concept of allies and then and who and that you need them. And I know for myself, like being a woman and also being a minority, like the concept of allies has always been a very important part of the discussion. So you you can't, I do kind of subscribe to the notion that you can't really change an institution without having insiders of that institution or or, or opinion makers or, or power brokers that are on your side. So it obviously does matter what the men think. Now, having been in covering this sport um, for many years now, and being in the press room when questions about the WTA are posed to to ATP players, I am not confident that uh, that fans are going to hear what they want to hear from their favorite players should these questions be put before them outside of Andy Murray. That's the reason why we talk about Andy Murray in these in a feminist lens glowingly because he's an outlier. He is an outlier. And he is an Completely. outlier. He's, and that's something that should we and part of the reason. Not that it's really relevant all the time what the men think about equal prize money, but part of the reason why they don't get asked about it more, at least, you know, obviously it's an issue we care about a lot, the two of us, and I write a lot about how these two tours intermingle and collide and commingle and whatever else they do, because they are, it's a very unique situation that tennis is in, having these two theoretically competing bodies sharing space mm -hmm. on a week-in, week-out basis. And when they share space, it is when the sport is at its greatest. Yeah. Like, let's not pretend that, like, joint events, whether it's the Grand Slams or the joint Masters Mandatories, aren't the biggest and most prestigious and, the you know, the best attended uh, 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 tennis tournaments look in the at, world. Look, I mean, the standalones are not – they maybe, don't bring it. Maybe I'm biased, but I think the three most overlooked 
Masters events are Monte Carlo, Bercy, and Shanghai. And those are the three that are so low it's without the women. not about the prize money that you yeah. offer, but in terms of the attention, the intrigue, when you have it has When you have a combined event, especially with the scale of all the top players mandatory for both tours, it's the best thing you can get in tennis. It's everything. It's everything. Yeah. And, so, it, and it goes yeah. both ways. And I'm not just saying that because, like, hey, men, like, recognize that the girls, like, bring, you know, the women bring in, you know, the, the dollars, too. It's on the flip side as well, that the biggest, the best and, and most prestigious premier mandatories um, you know, from, from just a fan perspective are the joint ones. Yeah. These are the tournaments we pay attention to far more than the standalones. And the more joint events that we can get, the more cooperation that you get from both tours, the more that just the tours prop each other up, um, and celebrate tennis as opposed to men's tennis versus women's tennis. Everyone wins. It's like this weird shooting in your own, like shooting of your own face nose, um, in order, <laughs> your own face in knows. order to what? It, it's, yeah. it, it's just, it, it's, I, I, it's absolutely mind boggling to me. I, and it's just ignorant. I'm sorry. It just is. It's just not seeing the big picture because as we have seen and as we've said, things are cyclical and, you know, there's not going to be a Serena around forever. WTA knows that. There's not going to be your Roger, Rafa, Andy, and Novak forever. Hence the new hashtag next gen, uh, campaign that we're seeing with the ATP, which is great. But when you sit down and you look at the next generation on both sides, what do you see? Especially, I mean, and what who do you see moving tickets worldwide? And that's I'm not I'm not saying that it's one or the other. I don't know because at the end of the day, people got to win. I don't care what you look like. I don't care what your charisma is. I don't care your playing style. You got to win slams and you got to be a champion. And if you're a Grand Slam champion uh, multiple times over and a norm, number one, you're gonna move. You know, money. Yeah. You're gonna you're gonna move tickets. Now, that being said, it's you know it's a weird situation that both tours are going to find themselves in in the future. You know, have I don't know. So this infighting is just like, not, and it's not infighting because it would imply that the WTA is fighting, <laughs> which it feels like the WTA is just kind of doing its own thing. And we keep getting like roped into things. It's like what? Like we weren't even what? Um, <laughs> really? But. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going. I just, okay. I've been, I've been just a, a bundle of emotions and that vacillate between confusion and anger and just complete and utter uh, laughter for the last six hours. You, I, I got asked by somebody uh, I was doing an interview with if I thought that similar to Serena's boycott of Indian Wells for 14 years, if there would be a similar boycott by the women of this tournament because of this. I do not think that will happen. I think the way that the tour and the players came out united against it with some you know, pretty solid backing shows that there is a, a common front here that was lacking for Serena, for sure, and Venus uh, back in 2001 when it was a very fractured, very contentious, you know, a lot of differing accounts of what happened. Yeah. This was all very straightforward and clear. What it means for Ray Moore's future of the tournament, I don't know, that's up to the tournament to decide. Uh, maybe the WTA can have some input on that, but probably unlikely. We'll see. So I think overall we can move on. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Quick update. As you undoubtedly heard, Raymond Moore stepped down from his position as tournament director of the BNP Paribas Open and CEO of the Indian Wells Tennis Garden on Monday evening. I think obviously these are issues, uh, the equality prize money stuff. It's, you know, a landmine, but it's one I enjoy tap dancing around just because I think I think it's fascinating how tennis women's tennis has achieved a status which no other women's sport has it's a remarkable success story so when people come for it 
you know, to, to attack it or try to bring it down, to be down on women's tennis, as Venus Williams would say. Um, if I could have wild-carded Venus Williams into today's press conferences, I would have, believed me. Yeah, she probably wouldn't have shown up. No, she would not have. <laughs> Well, she did think that, you know, this was not her day. Um, but, uh, but, yeah. But let's yeah. talk about the tennis. Actually, let's talk about Venus first. Because speaking of Venus, Venus did come to press for the first time uh, that I've been in a tournament this year. Uh, she came out to the New Wells, and I think it did. It was nice, as much as a, it was a, as best as an opening match loss could have been, I think, in terms of just the vibe of it and everything. Even though it was really horrible weather, the wind was really blowing, the crowd was not great because of, because of the conditions and everything. Kruminara beat her, played fine, but it was just a rough match. It's good to see Venus back, and it's good to, and I think Venus was on that whole New Wells comeback issue, spoke a lot more freely or a lot less calculatedly, and I don't blame Serena for being calculated and, and rehearsed with all the attention she had, but Venus seemed to be a lot more more open in a, in a sort of non-Venus way, just shooting from the hip about what it was. So I thought that was a very cool it was tremendous. way to start the tournament. It was tremendous, and you know, it's a shame that, that her return to Indian Wells was, was overshadowed by other news, um, but uh, I'll admit it, I was on the press balcony, and I maybe teared up the minute that the, the Jackson 5s, I want you back, the music uh, flared. was so good It was for so that. perfect. And, um, you know, cause, and, and she walked out and she just flashed that smile that, that, that she has. And it just, and the minute that she sat down, cause it was very unlike Serena's return. Serena was very tense and, and you could understand it, you know, last year. And, um, and she didn't know how she was going to react. And it was a bundle of nerves. And, you know, Serena cried and, and Venus smiled. You know, Venus knew exactly, just like her essay for the Players Tribune, kind of laid out she she kind of knew what to expect having seen what serena had done last year and how the crowd accepted her um and and gave her such a warm ovation that she kind of was able to step out on court without any fear uh which was really great and then she just enjoyed the moment that moment after she kind of waves to the crowd puts her racket back down and she kind of sat down slumped in her chair and just like took a deep breath and took in the moment I thought was absolutely beautiful. It it is going to be for me personally like the lasting memory of this tournament, like on court for me, um, just because it was it was a really beautiful thing to see, and the crowd was I thought great for her. And you're right. I mean her her post match press conference was was really. I mean it was top notch work. <laughs> she I'm mean, not to say that it was work or like how it just was everything she said. You just caught yourself nodding and just being like yes, say that, say that. That is fantastic and. It felt real and authentic, and uh, that is when both Venus and Serena are at their best, is when they're just being true to themselves and, and letting you in to to their mindset. And, and I thought I, that Venus really did. I think we saw that from both of them post-law. Yeah, this yeah, that's sure. true. So that that's was a good point. Very good to get authentic Williams. is always a pleasure. Uh, let's go to Azarenka briefly. Azarenka won this tournament. We haven't mentioned her much, but she did win Indian Wells. Biggest title for her a long time since she won since the Australian, Australian Open in 2013. 2013. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, she and Ronich were on similar trajectories a little bit, but I guess Ronich just, again, didn't finish the deal at all or even come close to finishing the deal today. Uh, Vika wins Brisbane, reaches quarters of Australia, loses to the eventual champ Kerber in a tight two-setter that she ruse, I'm sure. Comes out, wins Indian Wells. It's a beat Serena in the, in the final, only the fourth time she's beaten Serena. Serena was not at her best. Uh, it was very tight, obviously, the emotions of the thing, but Serena made a, a genuine pushback in the second set from five one down and we had seen that movie before i know you know it was like the whole there was a time in australia when serena was early as when serena was up was down a set in four love to vika and came back and won uh so it was ready to re-pop that tape in the vcr but being uh as held on 
thoughts on what this means for her, this title? Because it seems like a big one. It seems like she is back top 10, very much back, very much shortlist. Power rankings number two? Oof. Yeah. I mean, Number I, one? Number one? You know, I, ooh, that's tough. That's, she, tough she, that's a tougher one. What is she, 16 and one? She's either 16 and one or 15 and one on the year. Just that one loss. Either way is very good. Either way is very good. Um, the, the, the really, really interesting thing to me about Vika is, is obviously I was in Brisbane, watched all her matches there, watched all her matches in Australia, watched all of her matches here. I don't even think that she's playing that great. I think like, she's playing really well. I, I just, I, to me and by my eye, I still think, and I think that she says this as well, that there are so many areas of her game that she's still off on. And yet she's been able to put up, you know, these results, which is, which is really impressive. And, and I say that because, you know, it did take her three sets to get past Stozer. It did take her three sets to get past Pliskova. Granted, Pliskova was serving lights out 17 aces over a three set match. Um, but there have been, you know, those little wobbles here and there. But, but I think it was just really impressive from Vika. To again, you know, I, I think I tweeted after Vika went a set and a breakup. Hey, Vika setting a breakup on Serena Claxon. Like we've seen this before. Everybody get to your TVs, you know. And then when she went up a double break, I was like, okay, interesting. That maybe this is different. And then once Serena started storming back after Vika couldn't serve it out the first time, it was like, oh, I've seen this movie before. Um, and she got over the line and maybe that is a big signal in terms of the changes because again you look back to 2015 Vika has match points on Serena in Madrid chokes can't close uh, Vika's up a set and a break on Serena at the French Open can't close uh, Vika wins the first set at Wimbledon at least in that situation Serena played lights out pretty much uh, uh, in that final third set nothing to do there but you know, she's confident. She's chilled out. The Zen Vika is like definitely like a different thing to kind of get used to. Yeah. But it's working for her, I have to say. It really is. And I think to that issue of powering, he's number one potentially. Let's go to Serena. Serena now has, you know, had a great year except for the finals where she's it's come weird. up very short against opponents. It's like, it's she like, has statistically dominated. 0 and 2 in big final. Big finals. Last the time Aust- she lost back to back finals? Hit me. 2004. Really? Yes. Gosh, that's She lost like... to Maria at Wimbledon, and then she lost her next final against Lindsay. Wow. According to Tennis Abstract. Uh, I assume that's correct. But so I assume it's correct. Wow. That is how massive. She's, she's been such a good closer in her career. Like, mm-hmm. her slam finals record, one of her most impressive things. Going into this year, it was 21-4. and four. Now it's 21-5, and five, still good. But slipping at the big moments and hasn't had it when it's been chips on line. She had a great tournament leading up to this, to be clear. Mm-hmm. She played very well against Simona Halep in yep. a rematch against the defending champion. Halep played much better. Halep, by the way, good to see Come her on. back. Good to see her see back, Momo back seeing knowing like she <laughs> looking like she knows how to tennis, which had been in doubt for a yeah. couple months. No, she looked great. Uh, so thought. that was that was good for her. But Serena not closing and she's leaving titles on the table, obviously for the everyone emphasizing the, majors, the slam yeah. count. Leaving that, I I, re- I said at the time, I think, but I think even more now, leaving that Australian Open title, the number 22, on the table in a final against Kerber, I'm sorry, that is a, on a platter by her historical standards. Kerber played well. Yes, but you're Serena Williams. You should beat Kerber in a slam final. Come on. What it, are you doing? It's just, it, the interesting thing is that it's like the opposite. 2016 is the opposite of 2015. 
2015, right. like she was not playing at her best. She was constantly wobbly and yet she was able to get through and get those big wins and get those big titles. Titles she needed. Yeah, exactly. Here, it's like, I really feel like Serena's playing good tennis. She's playing arguably better. Yeah. And she was in 2015. And, she and some... she's titleless going into Miami she's... where if she doesn't win Miami, then you start to kind of get a little bit panicky because she's what, five times, six times, seven times, 12 times, time, eight times. Yeah. Eight time she owns Miami. Um, so if she goes winless, doesn't win Miami, and it's kind of like then has huh. no titles in the yeah. first three months of the year. I mean, then, I'm not going to panic, but I'm, I'm just going to panic. Like, but I'm huh. be like, Serena, this is not your normal standard. So, so yeah, I think that Serena um, would like to start winning one, and it's, it's discouraging. I think that she has. I don't know if it's a you know running out of gas at the end of tournaments thing or mental fatigue, which is understandable. Indian Wells, especially with the emotions, obviously there are asterisks. There's a lot of things going on in Indian Wells. Less so yeah. with the Australian. I, I still think the Kerber loss was. Straight up bad, but this one more excusable. I don't think it was that bad. Again, I, th- I think it, I, I think just don't think she played that bad. I mean, she just the net kinda, rushing was so awful. The net rushing was pretty bad. Fair enough. Uh, WTA scraps before we get to the men. Two players you mentioned in passing earlier. One of your I, sitting next to Courtney, you guys, you have no idea <laughs> how much I have to hear, or I should say, get to hear. Thank it's you. A I appreciate that. It's a privilege to get to hear so much. About Daria Kasakina, <laughs> who's a player who I'm sorry, no one else is talking about, really. It's part of your Russian lady watch thing. I respect that. <laughs> she made the quarterfinals here, which is her best career result of a big tournament like this. Uh, had some good wins. Beat Pachinsky mm-hmm. in a great match. One of the best matches she played. Uh, played a- Really dominant against Pachinsky. Yeah, really she was really particularly she's good against Pachinsky. Having just watched Keegan her now yeah. for, the, for the first time, mostly now. I mean, her, her strokes and everything. She's a very fluid player. Seems to be very, very solid mentally. All the pieces are there. She's young. She's still a little undercooked in terms of tour experience, but doesn't show much. Uh, yeah, she's a lot, a lot to like with uh, the Casacina. Courtney, here, take your time. Sell people on Daria Casacina. I know you want to. I don't think I need to sell people on Daria Casacina. You really do. They don't know who she no, is. I'm I don't sorry. Think that's they true. don't know no, who she is. No, this is not true. This is not true because David Kane and I have been talking about Daria Casacina since uh, on the WTA Insider podcast and on WTA Insider in our written content since the US Open last year. So there's already that. Secondly, Tennis.com did two, two pieces on Daria Kasatkina this past week. That is incredible. Courtney is the kind of person who counts how many pieces are being written exactly. by Daria Kasatkina. Well, because here's the thing, you guys. Okay, so in the first week, because Kasatkina and Vizina were in doubles, so I would, like, watch. I just like watching Daria Kasatkina hit a tennis ball. It's, like, cool. I, I like how she plays. Everybody was making fun of me. All these matches would be going on that were, like, super high profile, and they'd walk past my TV and, like, literally stop in their tracks and back up, and they're like, what are you watching? I was like, Kasatkina doubles. And they were like, you're crazy. Like, they were like, do you, or does WTA force you to do this? I'm like, no, this is, this is, like, my own time. I'm, I'm eating lunch, and I'm watching this. I just like watching her play. I think that she's incredibly endearing as a personality. She's very shy, but she's also very Russian in her straightforwardness in time, in terms of how she, she takes things on. And, um, but I just like her game. I just think that it's impressive what she's done and we haven't even gotten to her best surface yet, which is clay. So quarterfinals in Indian Wells in her debut, made her debut at the U.S. Open and made the third round last year as a lucky loser, made her debut at the Australian Open in January, uh, makes a third round again, loses to Serena. Uh, Serena complimented her on her forehand at the net. Uh, you After know, de- destroying, destroying her. Destroying her. Let's not pretend. That Let's was not a drubbing. But if you were going, you know, and, and, and she'll make her, I think, top 40 debut, I think, on Monday. Um, and is on the rise and, and most likely she'll be seated at the French. I don't know. She's just a good, she's a good kid. She's a fresh face. I mean, 
you know, in tennis, we get excited about kind of young prodigies. And, and I had never heard, let's I be very clear, I, maybe I knew the name from Junior Draws, but I had never heard of her as a pro until she got that lucky loser spot at the mm-hmm. U.S. Open when Sharapova pulled out. So it's been very, very fast rise, really off radar, and cementing herself, you know, going back door. Through the, not back door, but you know, through the rankings, very quietly, not really one huge. Not with like massive name. wins. Not like not I mean, big, she beat Venus, she but did, yeah, she beat Venus in, in Auckland, Auckland. But Venus, but, that people were like, Venus, what are you doing? Yeah, um, yeah. So good wins for her. But that's what I kind of like about her is that like it's very workmanlike. Like she's exactly. working herself not, through qualifiers. She's not overhyped. She's not overhyped. By you. <laughs> I just say it's hyped. Okay, you don't need to judge my level of hypeness. I, get I just hype on the Kazakina. What can okay. I say? Be cool, okay. Kasha, Dasha. It's all right. Let's go to another player briefly. Nicole Gibbs, speaking of WTA Insider, blogger for you guys. I promise that I haven't that. asked Ben to talk about this. It's, no, no. But, I'm, just, I'm just saying. I'm just, this is going to be a briefer one. But Nicole Gibbs making fourth round, beating Madison Keys. As a qualifier. decisively. Yeah, as a qualifier. Good win for her. She's someone who is poised to be right now at the best women's NCAA alumna. No, uh, yeah. In the WTA rankings for quite a while, since Lisa Raymond probably or Krabis yeah. or something like that. That's probably true. So good for her or Julie Quan. But she's ahead of Julie Quan right now. <laughs> Julie Quan. Let's not. Uh, sorry. <laughs> still, <laughs> still too soon. Still too soon. No offense, Julie Quan. Adore so, you, and you know it. Then she's coaching. It's still now. too soon. I know. Uh, so Nicole gives. Yeah, good. Good. Just want to give her a shout out. The men at this tournament mm. did some stuff. Uh, the most memorable match, I think, has to be. Alexander Zverev Oof. against Rafael Nadal in the fourth round. Oof. Alexander Zverev, who I wrote a story about for the Times this week, and I was coming, I knew it was coming out that day, so it's for relevance sake, thinking it'd be nice to get this big win. And he sure seemed ready to get this big win. He had match point against Nadal in the third set. Forehand and volley. And had a forehand away. volley. Um, not, not a tough volley. Not, not, not a complete He was closing. Volley. It wasn't a stand, a standing right. he was volley. Moving, he was closing moving on the Moving forward ball. and just dumped in the net badly. And from there, really folded so fast. Nadal came back, and it gave Nadal a lot of confidence. I mean, we talk about Zverev, but Nadal really talk about you know having your own truth or comments coming forever. Nadal got a lot of confidence out of that match that escaped next. He wasn't playing great before that match point was blown, but better after it. But then went on to beat Nishikori and played Djokovic pretty tough in the semis, uh, even though he lost uh, ultimately. What was it? Six and two. Yeah. So maybe not scoreboard. But it was so much better than Doha final, where he got absolutely blown out one and two. So yeah, uh, Zverev thoughts. Yeah, Nadal thoughts. Super impressive from from Zverev. I mean, that was probably the first concerted because I was I was doing um, BBC Radio for it. So I was like the first time that I really was like forced to like not multitask and have a Zverev match in the background. But maybe since his like breakout run in Hamburg a couple years ago, um, the first time I really sat down and watched him. And I think that for so long, my um, conception of, of Zverev was very much tainted by by what I remembered from Hamburg, which was that he would he see, like he seemed like he was a really talented kid. He also seemed physically underdeveloped. He was so twiggy. Back yeah, then. he was. He looked like Bambi on 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 the clay. Everything was kind of flailing. So I think that like even though I was tracking his results over the course of the last, especially this year, I was like, oh, it's probably the same thing. Like you know. So this was the first time that I watched him again. Very impressed by by his ball striking and how be- how much better it's gotten. That backhand is just an absolute just gem um and how big he could hit the ball hit the ball still obviously questions about his physical maturity that's I come with time he's but 18. that will come with time and, and my understanding is is that because he's working with jez green right. who's also working with with thomas burdick formerly um, of murray fame. formerly of murray fame and that jez green has told like the british reporters you know that that zverev is very much a long-term guy 
Like he understands that he is going to be physically taxed in a way that he's not going to be in four years and that he has a lot of physical development that needs to happen, but he's, he's in it for the long haul that his, you know, kind of ATP blood with his brother, obviously on tour and father that, that they've really given him a good long view of his career. So that's all, that's all good to hear. Very good head on his shoulders. Yeah. So, so I just hope that he doesn't, um, that that needle doesn't swing so far in terms of the patient's scale to where he doesn't feel the hunger now. Like, you know, you don't want, you don't want to see somebody who's young, who has all this talent, not try to maximize it now and, and just be patient and wait until everybody's leaving. And then like, oh, now like I'm going to make my move. Right. I would like to see No him. reason not to do it sooner. Right. Then. Exactly. Like just, you know, bu- you know, kind of a, a Dominic team style or even a chorage, you know, bust your ass and see what happens. Um, so that was Sasha Zverev. On the way, Sasha Zverev beat Grigor Dimitrov in the second round, I guess, which is a very think piece inspiring type <laughs> stuff about lost generation, whatever you want to say about that match. Batons, torches, torches, upside, downside, a lot of things. Lot of, so many things. But Dimitrov's generation much maligned. Um, and it's, as I think I've said on this show, I don't know about before, but there's a crazy stat, which I said over and over again. I had in the story, uh, I wrote about this final, or leading into the men's final. That now, after this tournament's over, there have been 80 Masters tournaments played since Novak Djokovic won his first Masters title in Miami in 2007. 80 tournaments. 80 tournaments. That is crazy. That is a lot. And all of them have been In other words, understandably, Novak Djokovic is the youngest player to currently have won Masters. I was about to say that. Okay, sorry. (laughs) I didn't mean to step on your lines. (laughs) Nobody younger than Novak Djokovic, including Novak Djokovic, uh, all the winners have been Novak Djokovic or older. In the last 80 tournaments, this next generation is not there. Looked like we might be able to break that streak with Milos Ronic. We had a candidate anyway to do it. Milos Ronic making the final of the BNP Paribas Open, but lost in a heap uh, in the final, getting injured again, 6-2-6-0. Ronic, I still think, though, has to be hugely encouraged mostly by this run, making the final. Didn't have any really huge wins, beat Burdich, I guess, and then beat Goffin in a pretty undercard semifinal compared to Djokovic Nadal. But overall, I still think he's the he's the one in this generation who's likely to do anything. And maybe coming up is the likeliest of anybody to do anything, even if you want to lump in like a Murray and a Federer. And maybe even Nadal. Maybe. <laughs> so many may- maybe. I'm adding Cole that's to a new. Top. That's a new really game. Maybe. <laughs> maybe to uh, be the most likely one to win a slam other than Djokovic this year. I really think he's in that conversation. Courtney, do you share my my Ronich hype even as his body seems to be betraying him on frequently uh, increasingly frequent intervals? I mean, I'm big on Milos. I don't want to seem that I'm not because I think that especially seeing what he did uh, in India Wells and particularly what he did in Australian Open, yeah. I was incredibly impressed. And I think that obviously he gets a heck of a lot of Anyone stick. Yeah, exactly. And I think that he, he obviously gets a lot of stick for seemingly being a serve bot. And that's the only thing. But I don't know, man. 2016 Milos, I don't mind watching him. Like it, it's Much a different, more watchable. Yeah, it's a, it's a different, you know, there's a lot more entertaining things that he's doing on court. Um, he's a nice guy. So, you know, like I... I I'm I'm confident in his ability to one day win a major, which I think we've discussed on this podcast before. The concept of somebody's got to win one uh, when all the big the guys go. Rule, yeah. yeah, the For years rule. on this show we've been talking about that, actually. Yeah, but that being said, I'm still on Team K. And I, I think that in terms of the, being the next uh, of that generation to 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 snap uh, that drought and to win a Masters title, to win to win um, um, 
you know, a major. I just think that one of the interesting things is like, I do think Ben mentioned it before that, you know, Rownich has been, um, ever so increasingly been suffering from injury. Uh, last year he had like a foot or a toe issue. I can't remember which one it was, um, that kind of sidelined him for a little bit. Now we're getting this recurring adductor injury, which is an injury that seems to be quite common, whether men or female, Hmm. um, with, with big, big servers, big hitters. Uh, Madison Keys, it's also a recurring injury for her. It's something that Scott Burns, her her trainer, told me is is something that he's been seeing quite a lot more in tennis of, of that sort of injury. You know, I, I worry a little bit about Milos. I mean, he has a great run in Brisbane, great run through the Australian Open, injures his adductor uh, in that fifth set or fourth set, I guess, uh, against Andy Murray, and, and kind of cap- and unfortunately has to kind of capitulate that match. And he hasn't played since then. Uh, you know, he was off all of February, skipped Davis Cup, all that sort of stuff. So we had four weeks to kind of get healed up and it wasn't enough. Uh, you know, today against Novak Djokovic had to take a medical timeout after the first set and really just was not there at all in the second set physically. So uh, that is the thing that I worry about is, is whether or not, you know, as much as everybody gives a lot of stick towards K of being like this fragile pony who like can't get through tournaments, uh, uninjured. He's actually shown far more resiliency over the last 18 months than K- than uh, Milos has. And so that's my take on it right now in terms of like where they're at. I'm just a little bit worried about where Brownish is, is physically. Yeah, I'm not super impressed with either of them in terms of physical resilience right now. Maybe that hasn't been Kay's issue, but Kay's match against Nadal was not encouraging. So That has nothing to do with physicality. That just no. has to do with like a bad day and Kay has those and we know that he does and you know, and, and do those bad days maybe come up more than Milos? Maybe. Uh, but, you know, um, I don't know. I, I think that for Milos to get through a best of five tournament, seven matches at this point, uh, and not to be able to heal that adductor in four weeks, I don't know. That, that, that's worrisome to me. That's a long time to be off and, and to find form and then have your body fail you once again. Speaking of, being off for a long time, Courtney. Who were you really excited to see at this tournament? Was that your Argentine accent? No, that was just my Womatita. I just, that's my excited Courtney, like Womatita Potro was playing tennis. Explain your excitement. What's not to love? I mean, we talked about it a little bit, a little bit when he made his return to Delray Beach. Um, he comes back here, gets a good win over Tim Smichek, and then, you know, pushes Thomas Burdick, um, in that first set, went to a tiebreaker, uh, eventually lost in straights, but, uh, it's just really great. I mean, you just see, you know, this goes into maybe a little bit of the discussion we were having earlier, but I was on radio for that match between Burdick and Del Potro. The crowd loves Del Potro. Like every time Del Potro did anything of note, they were going nuts. And every time Burdick won a point, there was like dead silence <laughs> in the stadium. And I felt really bad. I remember saying it on radio, just like, it's brutal, you know, like he just has this ability to kind of suck the life of a, out of a stadium sometimes, that uh, Thomas Burdick, which, you know, it's not his fault. Harsh. He's a perfectly nice guy. But, like, he just – something about his game style isn't something that people kind of get into. Yeah. And and But we've said this before, and, also, and pieces have been written. Everybody loves Juan Martin. And it's, it's just it, – yeah, going up against his charisma, Juan Martin de Poitras' charisma on court, without being, like, at all really trying to be, it seems like his natural charisma – which we saw in spades in that amazing match he had at the U.S. Open against Djokovic a few years ago, that incredible second set, the best that tennis ever played. Yeah. Uh, that was 
on display. And it was very clear here seeing him there, how the excitement of having him back, the other guys in the room, and they, they don't know how long he'll be back or if he's been out. But they're so happy to see him too. They're so happy to see him too. Francis Tiafo, who's the rare young player who doesn't name Federer as an idol and names Del Potro, was so excited seeing Del Potro back to practice them twice, which is having a time of his life. Everybody, everybody loves Del Potro, it seems like. And so it's just very cool for tennis to have him back. Hopefully it's for good. Yeah. Uh, his game is obviously still compromised, not really coming across on that backhand much at all. But he's weirdly found, like, it seems like he and his team have got to, got together when he started this comeback and said, look, I can't hit through my backhand. I'm scared. I'm freaked out about it. Um, you know, I, I can't do it. I'm hitting slices. Let's figure out how to make this work. And he actually does use that slice effectively in terms of moving the ball around and setting up his forehand to hit the big forehand. It's it's pretty impressive. And I wouldn't be shocked, actually, if with that left wrist, if he's tentative on it, if it was ever a more important match than Indian Wells. If he ever put let it, it aside and right, yeah. if he's if he's in a Wimbledon semi for whatever reason this year, which I don't expect, but if it'd be cool if he starts, you know, saying why not, you know, wrist is a wrist, let's just go for broke, <laughs> see what happens. That could be something it that would be. happen. Yeah, so I mean, we'll it's see. tough though. I mean, like even when we talk about comebacks, I mean, Laura Robson obviously using her protected yeah. ranking and playing here in the main draw, and she lost, but but she did say, you know, it, it is in the back of my mind, you know, and she's been. She says she's been healthy since January, which is fantastic. She hasn't felt any pain. She hasn't had to need. She hasn't needed any injections for the wrist. And obviously, both players are suffering from the same wrist injury and are seeing the same doctor up at the Mayo Clinic. And uh, but she said, "Look, it's tough, and I have to get over it and 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 move on." But I'm just not there yet. Yeah. And so it, you know, it, it's kind of both ways. I mean, maybe it feels, maybe right now you're less inclined to hit through it in the big moments. Because it means so much. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know how mentally yeah, you work through it. So I, Adelpo would know what Laura's talking about. And ladies know what we're talking about to wrap up this. Heyo! This episode. Bring it full circle-ish. Thank you guys very to much. To close for the listen- loop. To close the loop. Thank you guys very much for listening to this episode of No Challenges Remaining. If you want to follow along with us when you're not listening, you can do so by following us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. You can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. Subscribe to NCR on your podcasting app platform of choice, including iTunes, where you can leave us reviews. We think that's really cool. Uh, send us questions for upcoming shows or comments or whatever to our email, no challenges remaining at gmail.com. The executive producers of No Challenges Remaining are Pancho Resendez of tennisballs.com and Tal Woolley. Courtney. You got any feelings? I feel like this has been a week, a tournament of feelings. I can't feel anymore, Ben. I'm exhausted. Any I'm rant exhausted. raves? Anything? Uh, yeah. I mean, well, first off, just to to let people know, we have received some messages from people who are still waiting on their postcards mm. from Australia. Yes. We, we see those messages. There are more than one of you, uh, definitely, who haven't. Um, I suspect that it's a problem that came out of my batch yeah. that I was charged to to send out. So, but I can't check on that until I get home. So if everybody could just be patient and let me get some clarity uh, after Miami, I'll be home and, and we'll after fig- that. And we'll, we'll figure, figure it out. And we can say, cause we'll respond as much as we can. We have gotten quite a few messages about that. So it's clearly some sort of group bundle yeah. that got screwed up somehow. Um, if you don't get one from us this time, we will send you a postcard from the 2017 Australian Open. Yeah, for we'll sure. make, we'll, you will this get, will, this will get a postcard. This will get fixed. Uh, but yes. we'll, we'll let just be patient. Let me figure it out. I'll be home after Miami about uh, about seven five days after Miami, um, and let me 
sort that out because I do think that it's it's probably my fault as per usual <laughs> on this podcast. So um, yeah, just let me sort that out. But um, rant rave. I just really want to say season three of Broad City has been a delight and they are already five episodes in and Ben made the most heartbreaking statement to me the other day when we watched the most recent episode because we have been watching it from here um, where he said it's halfway over this season because they're 10 episode seasons and I got really sad but it's been so absurd and ridiculous. There was a Sister Act 2 homage. That was my favorite. That's Ben's favorite. He can't stop thinking you're talking about it. Just the, the audacity of, like, let's have them do a Sister Act 2 thing. Great. Who does that? Who does that? These ladies from Broad City do it. The Hillary Clinton cameo, which was tremendous, not because of Hillary Clinton, but because specifically because of a single line that Ab- Abby Jacobson utters uh, upon meeting. Sneaks in there. Sneaks in there, and it comes out of nowhere, <laughs> and it just redeems what otherwise would have felt like a very PR uh orchestrated thing kind of amazing um just absurd in every way it's and in, in in just the best way and it's just been wonderful and it's given i think i can speak for ben here both of us so much joy um as we've been trying to work through what has been because we had to catch up on episodes here so we were kind of doing a little bit of binge watching here it was just three episodes but um it's been great if you guys haven't started watching broad city please do if you're offended by it when you watch it i'm sorry uh, but it's it's just tremendous. For people who are starting, as well as make this the sales pitch, oh, what episode should they start with? I'm not sure you should start with season one, episode one for Broad City, just because it's kind of a strange episode. Okay. I personally would probably, I don't even want to say the episode name on the air, because I hate this word so much, but I would probably start with Pussy Weed. <laughs> yep. That's a season one, episode two, That's a right? season episode, season one, episode two, where, where uh, Alana, yeah. Alana, sneaks around pot in her vajayjay um and it's her, her vajinya as she calls it nature's pocket it's tremendous ladies you know what i'm talking about but the episode look what you don't know about <laughs> But the episode is tremendous. If you want to start, start there. Otherwise, there are, I mean, definitely other... Ben, do you have your starter episode? Again, it's it's one to to know who you're introducing it to. We we trust that you have a certain... And if you guys, again, it's, it's not for the faint of heart, this show, probably. It's, it's very irreverent, very crass, very blunt about things. No pun intended. No, pun probably intended. <laughs> um, yeah, but there, there are just... There's some subject matter... And thematic elements. Don't watch it with your parents, basically, and don't watch it with your kids. Yeah. Maybe test run. Don't watch it on a plane. I did that once. Didn't work out well. Is it visually that bad? It can be. Okay. I mean, think of the opening open, opening scene of, of the first episode. I forget that. They're Skyping Abby. Oh, right. Yes, of course. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Anyway. And a lot of, like, pot smoking and stuff like sure, that. Sure, so, sure, sure. You know, visually, it's not always the best to watch in public, but... Anyhow. It's a good show. Um, so I really like the one... Um, I think, what is it called? The one that's referenced in the Hillary Clinton one, which again, is not for the faint of heart one, with the handbags. I forget what it's called. Oh, with the handbags. Oh, the, not, it has a really obscure episode title name that doesn't at all reference the thing that happens in it, which is like a seminal moment in broad broad city history. Oh, knockoffs. Knockoffs, it's called. So that's a great one. Um, yes, a lot of good episodes of that show. Check it out. 
Um, also good Kirk Steele, obviously. But that's oh. for later. That's, you need to know the character. You do need to know the character. Some things have to be kind of established. Also, stolen phone. Stolen, stolen, stolen phone, phone is a really, is a good, really good one. That's a really good. That's a really good one. They run around all over New York trying to that's find stolen phone. Stolen phone is a good first pick. Yeah, stolen. So phone is let's good. go with that. Thank you guys. That's not my rant. Well, my rant separately, very shortly. Like, what are you guys doing, Melody Festival in Sweden, people? <laughs> I am so disappointed in you. Picking Franz with that crap song. I'm not even going to play it. I'm going to play the Sister Act song because you guys deserve better than Franz. And I mean you, Sweden. And I mean you, Europe. Russia's going to win this year, probably. It's going to be interesting. Okay. Oh, okay. They I should, want to say again, but they didn't win they didn't, last year. They, right? they lost to Sweden. Yeah. Um, it should be fascinating. And they just have... I haven't heard all the songs, in fairness, but of what, like, the front-runnery ones I've heard... Russia's far and away the best. So it'll be interesting to see, because that was obviously got messy last year when they almost won. So we'll see how it goes with the Eurovision politics and the things. It was things a good song, and... though. It was okay. This one's better. The first Russia performance was really good. The second one was terrible. Of the fi- it was a I wouldn't two- say terrible, but okay. It was it lacked the energy, and maybe the newness. I don't know. Okay. Maybe maybe the first time I saw it, I loved it. But like, I, love I think you're... the first time I watched it, I was like, oh shit, she has that voice. But then people started to convince me that she actually does have that voice. And I was like, okay, fair enough. I love that you're, like, zapruderang Russian Eurovision performances. I, not, I've done good work. No, but you know, you have. You absolutely have. It's like whenever you tweet me about women's soccer, it makes me happy. But, like, to me, like, I just remember being, like, really impressed by Russia's first performance and then watching them the second time and being like, meh. Her voice is good. The song is not much. It's with my thought on Russia 2015. Anyway, with that, here's Sister Act. Bye, guys. Serbia still should have won. What have you done for me lately? Do 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 do. Ooh, 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 yeah. By the way, bye. Bye. bye.